0: Hello and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co hosts TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back and enjoy the show. Alright everybody, welcome back. Here we are again. In fact, we are wrapping up season four of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast today. Uh, last but certainly not least, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 2. TJ and TJ, how excited are you guys to talk about Type 2? Two?
1: two on a scale of one to ten.
0: <laughs> a scale of one to nine, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. And is, is nine highest and uh, one lowest or vice versa here? Two is the highest. Two, two is the, the highest. T- uh, top of the scale,
1: uh, naturally. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I loved good. both of these movies, and I'm really eager to dive into this.
0: I had not seen one of the movies. So the two movies we're going to do today are Dead Man Walking and I Love You Man, which um I had not seen before, the second one. I had seen Dead Man Walking, and... uh well, we'll talk about our feelings about these movies, uh, as we go, uh, and, uh, see how, so how we felt about them. So, um, again, we're talking about type two of the Enneagram. This does kind of bring us to the end of season. Jeez, TJ, which season is the season four. four holy cow. We've been doing this for years now. Uh, so this brings us to the end. We're going to take a little hiatus after this and come back with some more awesome stuff with season mm. five, but, uh. So before we get into talking about the movies, uh, let's do a quick overview of Enneagram Type 2. Uh, Enneagram Type 2 is what we call striving to feel connected. Uh, now, a lot of the literature in the Enneagram talks about the 2 is the helper, right? Of wanting to do things for people, of wanting to take care of other people, of you know being this uh, sort of uh, charitable person who is always doing for others and forgetting about themselves. Now, that's true to some extent, but I think that's a second order consequence when what's really driving this character is a need to feel connected to other people thus we call it striving to feel connected i want to know there's some emotional bond between us now helping people is one way to guarantee that there's some bond right what's the best way to get you to like me to get you to want to be around me to get you to connect to me to do something nice for you and hopefully you'll do something nice in return for me and we'll have this wonderful reciprocal relationship now this, you know, we'll see sometimes in some of the Enneagram literature that twos give to get, right, which always irritates me a bit because I think it, um, it casts aspersions on the motives of what's happening here, and it's not necessarily a self-centered giving all the time, right? I think a lot of times it comes from a really good place. Plus, I think that we all do what we do in order to get, right? So I don't think it's fair to just put that on twos. So the neglected strategy is at point four, striving to feel unique. And what we mean by that is that not that twos can't be creative, artistic people. Uh, It's not that they don't have a point of view about things. It's not that they don't contribute in that way. But there's this tendency to seek commonality rather than to emphasize difference. Right. So whereas the four is thinking, well, here's how I am different from the other. The two is thinking, here's how I am similar to the other. Okay, So this asserting of their own individuality often gets neglected for twos. The support strategy is found at 0.8, striving to feel powerful. And it's this real kind of strength and assertiveness that we often see in twos as a way to connect, right? In a negative way it can be sort of, well, you know, if you're going to ignore me, you know, I will not be ignored in the uh, famous words of Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, and I will make you love me. I will force you to. So some twos can pre- be pretty volatile people. But when twos are healthier and more grounded and acting from a, you know, a better place, there's this assertiveness for doing good for other people, bringing them together, making things happen. And we certainly see that in Dead Man Walking, right? This is, a you know, Sister Helen Prejean was really a powerful force, uh, even though um, it was in kind of a laid back and tentative way in some ways, but she had a big impact. Now, if we go kind of into the uh, core qualities, the core quality of point two is compassion, and that gets stunted in the twos, and so they're looking to connect as a way to uh, feel compassion for people. Compassion is something that will really come up, again, particularly in our conversation about dead man walking. Individuality is the other core quality that gets stunted, and vitality can be stunted as well. Now, the classic vice of the two is pride right? This view that I know what is best for others, okay? I am special because I know what's best for you. And this can be a challenge for the two, right? This desire to fix people's lives for them, even if they don't want to be fixed, to have opinions about how people should do things, even if nobody wants their opinions, so forth. So it can be kind of a you know, what my mother used to call a budinsky, right, of, uh, you know, helping people who don't want to be helped necessarily out of this view that you know better, okay? Um, the fixation is flattery. This is something we see in twos very often. A, you know, again, if I'm trying to connect to you, I'm going to tell you how wonderful you are. I'm going to point out all the good things you do. I'm going to go out of my way to make a point that I think you're special in some way. And then uh, finally, the virtue is humility. And this is when the two learns that, okay, yes, I can be helpful. Yes, I can be of value, but I have to keep it in perspective. And not everybody wants me to fix their life for them. Okay. Uh, guys, what about the two did I miss that you want to bring up?
1: I would say it's worth mentioning that the affect of twos is generally friendly, sweet, and warm. And the shadow side of that is that twos often have this injunction from inside that it's, it's not okay to talk about anything that's perceived as negative. It's not okay to not have good feelings or to impose that on anybody else or to even sometimes feel that in private. So twos can have a lot of repressed or swallowed sadness and anger.
2: Mary, I was going to ask you, so you said the sin of the two is pride. You know, I know what's best for you. I know what you should do. And as I was hearing that, I was thinking, oh, as a one, that feels very familiar. So tell me, just give me a quick overview of what's different about that between the two and the one. What, what's driving each of them to have yeah. that same result, but the feeling's different.
0: Yeah, so with the one, it's usually around a behavior. I know what you should be doing here. Right, I know how you should be acting. Whereas with the two, it's I know what you need. Okay, I know what would make you happy. Okay, so it's not so much I have this view of what you're doing wrong, like you know that we rely on ones to do for us. Yeah, happiness.
2: <laughs> Who cares about that? We just need to do the right thing. That's right. <laughs> and if you're if you are happy, you probably aren't doing the right thing. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah,
0: so uh, so yeah, so we, we dislike ones and twos for different reasons, you know, so that's <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but it's a good question, very good question. All right. Um, all right, great. So uh, and again, I'll just say with the, uh, with the instinctual biases and the subtypes, the connecting is a way to get their instinctual needs met. So for the preserving to, I connect to people to get my preserving needs met. And very often I will help other people get their preserving needs met in hopes of forming this sort of reciprocal relationship. I'll take care of you, so you'll take care of me when I need it. With the navigating to, it's this, you know, I navigate by connecting to people. So my, my, my value, my identity, my, my role within the group is defined by those who i am connected to who i am associated with and for the transmitting to it's more around that significant other right it's that if this person you know i get my transmitting needs met by transmitting to this person and to that person so this tends to be the most kind of one-on-one relationship focused of the subtypes most seductive, most, uh, you know, the, the need for a tight romantic or even a platonic, an intimate platonic relationship as well. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about movie number one, I Love You, Man.
1: So I Love You, Man came out in 2009. It was co-written and directed by John Hamburg, which is somebody I had never heard of. It's about Peter Claven, played by Paul Rudd in one of his first leading roles, or maybe one of his first leading roles that most of us saw. He plays an LA real estate agent who, at the beginning of the movie, proposes to his girlfriend Zoe, played by Rashida Jones, and she accepts. And then it comes out pretty soon that he doesn't actually have any close male friends, no one to tell that he just got engaged, and most worryingly, no one to ask to be his best man. So after he has some false starts trying to befriend other men. He eventually befriends Sidney Fife, played by Jason Siegel, who's a free-spirited investor. And the two of them click and they end up hanging out and spending a fair bit of quality time together, which ends up threatening the stability of Peter's relationship with Zoe. So after a number of events, the engagement gets called off. And Peter cuts off his friendship with Sydney. But of course, the engagement soon gets restarted, and Sydney gets a last minute invite to the wedding as Zoe acknowledges how much Peter seemed to get out of that relationship. And Sydney was on the way to the wedding. Anyway, he shows up. He is the best man. And Sydney and Peter express their love for each other with the phrase that became the title of the movie. And everyone lives happily ever after.
0: Hey, Sydney, I could be in Venice by five, I could do that. This is a mandate.
1: He's the most beautiful dog in the world. need a plastic bag? <laughs> or... Oh no, I don't clean up after my dog.
0: Damn it! How about cleaning up after your dog? You
2: mind your own!
1: <laughs> what the? Society tells us to act civilized, but the truth is we're animals, and sometimes you gotta let it out. Try
2: it. Ah.
1: Respect the process. Ah. Yeah, you feel better? Yeah. Want to eat a corn
0: dog? Yeah. Let's go. So what do you guys do for seven straight hours? Yeah, Pete! So is he your best man?
2: It's way too early to tell. Sweet, sweet hanging. Truth is, I've been a girlfriend guy, but out of all those girls, you're the only one that wanted me to have my own life. It's like one of the most romantic things I could ever think of. <clears throat> What's up? <clears throat> Come on. Hey, Geek! I just stepped in your dog's crap! <laughs> yes
0: yeah, so this was interesting in that it was the um, sort of male version of a how do I want to put it it was the male buddy version of a chick flick right all the conventions of the quote unquote chick flick were in this right there was the uh, there was the meat cute right there was this awkward bonding of two very different people there was the Uh, You know, the misunderstanding that causes the rift in the relationship and then the reconciliation, which is basically the plot of every Hallmark movie uh, that you'll ever see, right? Just, I mean, beat per beat. And uh, this was just an interesting sort of twist on it that way.
1: And the reconciliation is preceded by somebody rushing to meet the (laughs) other one. Yes, (laughs) that's right. And a word that was used relentlessly in the promotion and reviewing of this film was bromance. That's Uh probably when that word kind of entered common use which I think the two leads got really tired of hearing. I read something about that at the time. But yeah, you're right. This is a movie that more typically would be about two women or about right. a woman
0: and a man. Right, so TJ Dahl, you're you you were you're a fan of this movie.
1: Yeah, uh, to my own surprise. So when this came out, before this came out, I got a pass to see a sneak preview of it. And I had no interest in it because I thought of the two leads as just two guys who were in a bunch of Judd Apatow movies, which I hated at the time which i now don't feel that way about so i saw it in the theater and it was packed because everybody wants to get a free lunch and it made me realize how seldom i see comedy not only in the theater but in a full theater and the laughter was infectious and i got caught right up in it and fell for this movie in a big way i hadn't seen it again until about a year or two ago and loved it again and really enjoyed watching it and prep for this
0: yeah, so I had never seen this movie, and, um, and I realized watching it the second time that I feel about this movie the same way I feel about Rush, the band, which who, who plays prominently in this movie, right? They're a big part of it. And my approach to Rush is, I mean, right now, I have Gilded Cage going through my head in the background, right? The song. And That's
1: a lyric, it, by the way. Uh, the song is a Limelight. I'm a huge Rush fan, so I'm here to provide Rush accuracy. Okay. As we okay. This well, discussion. thank
0: you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Right. Uh, so and so, TJ, please don't
1: take offense at this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Are you about to say that you don't love Rush? Is so? That's you're the first person who's ever expressed that opinion. <laughs>
0: not only that but people who love Rush sort of irritate me Uh, and uh, now, now you don't TJ so this is you know you're 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 falsifying my premise here okay now here's the way I feel about Rush I listen to the when I hear their songs I tap along I you know hum it in my head that sort of thing but then when I think about it I say God, I hate this, right? <laughs> and that's how I felt about the movie, right? I mean, I'm 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 having a good time, I'm laughing, and then, and then I'd start thinking about, it and I'd say, God, I hate this movie, right? Now, <laughs> I hate you, man. I hate you, man. Now, I, it's not so much that I hate the movie, because there were things about it I loved. Okay, I loved uh, 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 Adam Sandberg. Okay, Andy I loved. Sandberg. And uh, thank you. Boy, oh, boy. All right, great. So, Andy Sandberg, thank you. Um, And um, uh, J.K. Simmons, I thought was great. Uh, Just just hearing the name um, uh, Hank Mardukas uh, will make me laugh for the rest of my life. Okay, so uh, there were things like that. I loved the Lou Ferrigno. Uh, piece of it and I I get this thing I like movies when there's a line like um, you killed Bill Murray from uh, Zombieland right just this weird bizarre cameo by somebody who's playing themselves and then there's something weird happens and there's a line like you killed Bill Murray and in this one it was you know Lou Ferrigno put me in a sleeper hole sort of thing right (laughs) you know it's just to me that's funny and I always enjoy that right But I'll tell you, these two guys, I couldn't decide which one of them's head I wanted to stick into a toilet more. (laughs) I I mean, I just found them both so irritating. So (laughs) anyway, so this doesn't need to be about me and my dysfunction. But it did tell me something that this, you know, for point eight, point two is the neglected strategy. Okay, so we look at this striving to feel connected and we see it as a sign of weakness and vulnerability and And that's all I could think of with these two guys. What a couple of needy schmucks Right, and I just found it so hard to respect either of these guys. Okay, now look I'm gonna come right out and say it. This is a mario issue, right? So don't you know listener? Don't let this hinder your enjoyment of this movie because there were funny parts of
1: it. All right. So, and you have been open about the fact that you have a blind spot about male twos in general.
0: I do. I do.
1: And do you mind expanding on that?
0: Yeah. So, I, for me, again, we all bring our own biases to everything, right? So, we, you know, you're absolutely right. And for me, because so you take a look at what was happening with these two guys their insecurity their need to say these stupid you know sayings like all all these things that paul rudd would say you know just these trying to be clever like uh uh uh, totes my goats when he was trying to say (laughs) you know it's just it's, it's just like dude man you know it's like stop 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 trying so hard right just just Say totally, right? And move on, right? Don't try so hard to impress. And so for me it's just this, this kind of neediness of, you know, I'm bending over backwards to find some way to connect to you. Look, in this movie, I'm Barry. I'm the John Favreau character, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay.
0: I'm I'm just the one that's like, get out of my house. Yeah. You know, right? so, After you get projectile vomited yeah, on. Yeah so yeah so it's this it's this thing where you know for me that is the big that's the last thing I want to be perceived as as trying to find ways to get people to like me okay that make me do stupid things and say stupid things and so forth okay so that is you know for me it's like yeah that's I, I just get that away from me okay now and so because to my mind that's so the opposite of how I want to be, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone would be that way. Mm-hmm. Thus, when I am meeting people and when I am assessing new clients, it just never occurs to me that they would be a two if they're a male, right? Because why would anybody be that? Okay. Now, I also am going to say is I have dear friends who are type two males, okay? So I'm not, you know, casting aspersion. I'm not saying they're good people. I'm not saying they're wonder not wonderful people. It's my blind spot that comes up and, and gets in the way sometimes. So so I had a big I had a big issue with this movie in that way. But let's hear from you guys. Tell me what was too-ish about this movie for you.
1: Well one of the big things is Peter is caring, friendly, and generous throughout. So when the plot point emerges that he has no close male friends, that's not because he's really abrasive. Or because he's sulky or has problematic views or anything like that. He's nice to everyone in a genuine way. And he doesn't feel to me like an unhealthy two who's pushy, who's crossing crossing boundaries. He's just he's a genuinely nice guy. So one of the one of the scenes that shows this up is uh, Zoe's having a girls' night. And he was hoping to hang out with some guys from his fencing club it didn't happen so he comes back he sneaks in he overhears them they're having a great time And what does he do he goes into the kitchen and makes a tray of root beer floats for everybody <laughs> and he's walking in with this tray of root beer floats with chocolate straws when he overhears them having a conversation about him and about how he doesn't have any male friends and then tries to slip out but then zoe realizes he's there so he comes in and again he's all smiles and pretends he didn't hear and he knows exactly what the name of those chocolate straws are when somebody asks, you know, he wants to pass it on. So he's constantly doing things like that for other people. You know, he's invited to bond with the Barry character, John Favreau's character. They have a poker night. It comes out that he doesn't really drink that much, but he doesn't mention that when they have this beer relay that causes him to projectile vomit all over Barry. But, you know, he wants to play along. He wants to be a good guy. At one point, Zoe and her two friends are at the store that they run. It's their own store. And Peter comes in and he says, I just had a meeting downtown with the owners of the development site and I thought I'd stop by on my way to the office. So twos are often doing things like that. It's like, you know, kind of goes out of his way, but not super out of his way. It's like, I'm here anyway, may as well do something nice. So he's doing a lot of things like that, checking in with people, doing nice things for people without being asked, without even somebody nudging him towards doing this thing. He wants to be friendly. That's, That's simply his way of being.
0: And and I'll just say so as I'm watching this thing with the with the root beer floats I'm watching this with my wife and all I'm thinking is great now I got to listen to it. how come you never make me and my girlfriend you know root beer floats you know And, and did like, she say that No she didn't but she was thinking it yeah, I know you can, she was you thinking hear those of thoughts it. Yeah. yeah I could hear the thoughts right and I'm thinking you know screw you you know Paul Rudd you know it's like well I got to deal with this now right <laughs>
1: All right, go Yes, ahead. you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's also very other focused. So, a big thing twos have trouble doing is investing in themselves, prioritizing themselves. It is very much about the other person. In this case, more often than not, Zoe, the object of his love, his fiance. So, you know, the movie opens with him proposing to her, but right before that, he sets it up by. Talking about this development that he wants to fund and do, and he's already thought of that she can open a second location of her store there. Like she's part of his big dream. Uh, he's also described as a girlfriend guy. You know, he's always had a lot of girlfriends. He's never had male friends. So when he overhears this conversation, you know, one of one of Zoe's friends says, A guy without friends can be really clingy. And she describes, I think it's her sister and her husband is, is like that. When are you gonna come home? Oh, can I come with you? Oh, there's nothing on TV. What am I supposed to do? And Peter, you know, we see his reaction. He's not in the room, but we see his eyes widen as he's realizing, like, "Oh, that is kind of me," or "That could potentially be me." You know, it's really hard for twos to prioritize themselves and to even ask the question, "What would I like to do with my evening or my afternoon that isn't doing something nice for somebody else?" Much less not not just to have that thought, but then to do it. Like for most twos, that doesn't even occur to them. Right. He's not an unhealthy two. He's does Like I said, he doesn't cross boundaries. He's not like twos that we sometimes see in movies like Fatal Attraction, where they're actively dangerous and creepy. His his fault is that he's just too darn nice and incapable of thinking about himself.
0: T.J. Gracia, what was two-ish about this movie to you?
2: Honestly, I had a little bit of a harder time. It wasn't that, I mean, I, I, yes, I see all the things that you're saying there, but also it felt like it was a little bit of, not a caricature, but almost like a, like these characters aren't quite real. Like they're just yeah. plot devices to get these yes. funny moments to happen. And, and what you know, that has its place. Not every film has to be like Dead Man Walking, where you have to like crawl out of your depression when you <laughs> get to the end of it. Right. But so I had a little bit of a hard time putting my finger on a lot of specific things. But so one question that I had that I thought would be interesting to talk about basically I think there's sort of this idea and it's a little bit of a stereotype, but sort of like I think people think of type eight energy as sort of your caricature stereotype masculine energy and type two energy is sort of this caricature stereotype feminine energy. And so seeing a male character that has this two-ish energy there, there's something in there you know and he has only female friends and he doesn't have a lot of guy friends and so I was just thought curious your thoughts on that if that plays into potentially Mario with your issues with male twos or if you've had those uh, if you've had that come up with some of your clients or to just speak to that issue a little bit
0: so you use the word masculine the words masculine and feminine which I think are important words to note okay we're not saying male and female um, We're not saying, uh, you know, effeminate, for example, right? Or, you know, anything, you know, um, like that. So, So, yes, these are, particularly in U.S. culture, the stereotypes of, you know, feminine energy and masculine energy, and we see a lot of women who mistype themselves as twos because of um, social expectations, okay, of what a woman's quote-unquote role is in a lot of cultures, right? So there is that. And we do sort of idealize, at least again in U.S. culture, you know, we can, we can consider it a three culture, but I think we do idealize the male eight energy, right? The John Wayne and, you know, the, the Russell Crowe and whatnot. Um, so yeah, these are stereotypes that we're up against. And they can be problematic this way. And so when we do see somebody who is, you know, a female type eight, they seem like an outlier, right? Like Ripley is not, you know, what we think of as, you know, the feminine ideal necessarily. Okay. So it's kind of a, you know, a disconnect in our minds in some way. And I think there's some of that with uh, male twos as well. Okay. So I actually find that there are a lot of I I shouldn't say a lot, but I have seen it not uncommon for male twos to not identify themselves clearly as twos because of these stereotypes. So yeah, so this is an issue. And again, we have to point out that, you know, a big part of the work for type eights is to learn to integrate that's striving to feel connected, so they can do it in a way that feels comfortable and uh, thoughtful and generous and all of these things and doesn't appear to be weak, right? Or doesn't feel weak for them. So uh, that's that's a big part of the work there. And for twos to learn in a way also to integrate that eight-ish energy, so it doesn't either be abdication of my own authority, abdication of my own desires, and then swinging into this sort of aggressive, you know, demanding of my own needs and authority. So they both need to integrate each other's um, issues in that way.
1: I would add to that, that these cultural stereotypes Play out in a big way in terms of which movies and TV shows get made and yes. how they're cast, how they're written, how they're directed. So, like, it's a perfect parallel how you really have to do a lot of digging to find female eight characters in movies and TV. You have to do a lot of digging to find male twos. And there's an overabundance of male eights and an overabundance of female twos because, as you said, Mario, these are messages that we get from all directions in in at least American culture and any adjacent to America culture of like, this is what it means to be a good man. This is what it means to be a good woman. So there can be a lot of baggage if if that's not your home base, but it's like, well, this is what's going on inside. You, you have to go, you kind of have to swim against the tide of those messages of like, but I'm supposed to be this other thing that doesn't quite feel right to me. So it can be hard to identify as the thing that I really am. And I too have witnessed that in workshops. Yeah. Uh,
0: I also wanna to, um, uh, touch on TJ Ingrassi, what you said about the uh, these characters being caricatures. Okay, so um, I think Paul Rudd, he usually plays a nine-ish or seven-ish sort of character, I think, um, in you know most of the movies that I'm familiar with him. And again, I, I like him as an actor. I, I think that he, I think that he's got a lot of nine stuff going on just because of his likability and ease and you know calm and just you know he's just one of those guys who you just immediately like, right, uh, most of the time, and. Um, so, the portrayal wasn't pure two, uh, I think. And I would even say that Jason Siegel, what was it, Sydney? Um, I kind of saw that as a two character also, right? There was some seven stuff going on there, you know? I think that there was some, you know, you could have gone different ways with this, but ultimately, as I looked at the character, I thought the core issues they're both wrestling with have to do with connection, right? Which is what two stuff is all about. So that's kind of how I
1: read them. I don't know, Thought, thoughts on that? Thoughts on the Jason Siegel? I saw him much more as a seven. That was kind of teed up by Russ Hudson typing those two characters as his two and seven, respectively, and then years later, I heard Jason Siegel in an interview on NPR Fresh Air, and he said that his character was directly modeled on Russell Brand, who had a supporting role in his movie, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And when he auditioned, he came in for the audition just saying, I'm sorry, I meant to read the script, but I didn't have time. So if you can just tell me what you'd like, I will give you what you want. And Jason Siegel describes himself as incredibly self-conscious. It led me to think he might be a six. He said, I'm the kind of person who will stay up all night anxious about some remark that I made to somebody at a party and then call them like the next day or the day after apologizing for it. Then it turns out they don't even remember that remark, which is signature six. And so he was astonished watching Russell Brand. of just like, who does that? What's that like to just be so in command of like, well, here's who I am and take me as I am. So he modeled Sidney Fife directly on that of like, just, hey, I'm just this guy. I live for pleasure.
0: Yeah, so so for me, that was kind of, I, I hear what you're saying and I was initially seeing it as a seven. But there was just such neediness as well. And I think that there's a disconnect in the script where, you know, for example, the fact that he went rushing to the wedding, okay, and this whole need for connection, this whole need that to, you know, I have to be there for you and I love you and all this other sort of stuff just didn't feel seven-ish for me, particularly transmitting seven, which a Russell brand would be. Right. Um, you know, so it just, for me, the Jason Siegel character was, a, 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 you know, kind of a, a a platypus in a way. Right. Of just these pieces of different types thrown together. For comedic ends. <laughs> for comedic ends. Yeah. So it was not a clearly drawn character in my mm-hmm. view because there were inconsistencies with all the types that I sort of considered.
1: Uh, how about subtypes for... Um- each of the leads yeah so uh
0: with the um with the paul rudd character again inconsistencies i would ultimately lean toward the preserving subtype of the two okay uh is how it felt because he really was focused on you know their fundamental needs and that sort of thing and uh there was also his lack of social relationships and connection tends to indicate the preserving subtype for me the the jason siegel character um there were parts of him that were transmitting also parts of him that were navigating one of the things about navigating that i saw a lot of navigating in was for example when he first meets him and he's he's uh doing the play-by-play on the guy's fart in the uh, corner, right so uh, you know that, that there were those kind of navigating um, tendencies which are not things that transmitters would have picked up okay so i I would lean toward navigating with him
1: same with thing when he can read that Peter's lying from the fact that his voice goes up consistently
0: yes yes yeah that's there were really a number navigating. of those things yeah yeah he's good at things.
1: reading people that's just part of what he does yes and he's got a group of friends and he's yes. Like, interested in connecting different people and, you know, thinks to buy a six foot sub for his buddies after they do this day long hike and reaches out to Peter to hang out. Like, that seemed much more navigating than transmitting to me.
0: Yes, yes. And there was the, um, back to Peter, his horror at the billboards for me was very much a preserving thing right? It's like, how dare you expose me in this way? Horrible things are going to happen now. So that was a preserver's reaction to that behavior.
1: Yeah. He was very self-conscious about self-promotion and he dresses pretty conservatively. You know, he's often like in a vest. You know, he's dressed nicely, not ostentatiously, not in a way that's going to draw anybody's attention. So then to be shown on a billboard as James Bond or as a sexy cowboy or what have you, it had him yelling in the car, you know, and that's what precipitated him breaking off his friendship with Sydney. You know, he just felt so embarrassed by that. And then of course that's the piece that helps him sell the house and kickstarts his career. It ends up being exactly the right thing. Right. 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 I, I saw some preserving in him in terms of like at the open house, he makes a point of providing food and making sure that it's good food and feels great when the Jason Siegel character compliments him on the food. Yes. Let like on specific ingredients.
0: Yes. Yes yeah uh the other uh character th- th- my two favorite characters in this movie well now there were a few okay so there was the the father of the jk simmons uh character and, and like i said i thought the andy samberg character was really great the scene with her at dinner talking about being best friends was just i thought hilarious um but the other ones too i thought john favreau and um and uh, i i keep wanting to call her amy smart but it's not it's um uh, Jamie Presley. Jamie Presley, yeah, thank you, who I'm a big, big fan of. And, uh, um, you know, I just thought they were two great eight characters and the, the way they interacted with each other. And it was interesting for me to read that uh, Jon Favreau was in this movie at around the same time he was directing Iron Man. So it was before he <laughs> kind of took off. And he wasn't sure if he wanted to, you know, do an acting role because he was about to get this Iron Man thing. And he said, Robert Downey said to him, hey, man, just do it. Have fun. You know, remember how the other half lives. And he did it. And I thought he was a a breath of fresh air in the movie.
1: It looked like a fun movie to be in. Yes. Like there's a number of scenes where I got the sense that they were improvising or embellishing somewhat and having a good time doing it. And it has Rush in it. And, you know, and I do want to
0: say, I, I, I do want to clarify, right? So, yeah, I, I know I kind of was hard on this movie and the characters. It's a fun movie, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fun comedy. Uh, it's, there were parts of it that I thought were definitely worth watching, uh, even if it got under my skin a little bit. So, uh, final thoughts on I Love You, Man.
1: Another minor character that I thought was a pretty strong type was Tevin, who's the workplace <laughs> rival, who I thought was just such a cartoonishly comedic transmitting three. He's all about self-promotion. He has no self-consciousness uh-uh. of any kind. He's got frosted tips in his hair. He brags that his face is on urinal cakes, and that's what, part of what helps him <laughs> get new clients.
0: Yes. Yeah, and of course, shout out to, to Lou Ferrigno, and uh, you know, I'm a, I I still remember when the Incredible Hulk was a uh, you know first run TV series, and uh, it, it was great to see those references. Also, shout out for the Tico Brahe, uh, you know, a recognition for the Tico Brahe. Shout out at, at the end there when they, it was one of the uh, Tico Brohe uh, when they were doing all the Bro variations. <laughs> um, He was the uh, early Danish astronomer um, who preceded, I think preceded Copernicus, as I recall. Anyway, I've been to the tower where he did his work in in, in Copenhagen, it's a cool spot. So um, yeah, a lot to like about this movie if you're not a curmudgeonly old man like me. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, Visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media.
1: Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one on one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website,
2: www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com.
0: All right, let's move on to our next movie. Uh, Uh, Another comedy. (laughs) Dead, <laughs>
2: dead man walking uh, tj and grazia tell us about dead man walking dead man walking is the 1995 film directed by tim robbins exploring the thought-provoking and emotionally charged journey of sister helen prejean a real-life catholic nun played by Susan sarandon who won the oscar for this role as she becomes a spiritual advisor to a death row inmate named matthew poncelet played by sean penn Set in Louisiana, the story begins when Matthew is convicted of a brutal double murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Sister Helen, driven by her religious beliefs and a desire to provide compassion and guidance, begins a friendship with Matthew, initially through letters and then through meetings at the prison. Through their interactions, Sister Helen learns about Matthew's troubled past and begins advocating for his redemption and the recognition of his humanity. As Sister Helen becomes more involved in Matthew's case, she faces opposition from the victim's families and a justice system that is resolute in its pursuit of capital punishment. The film delves into the moral complexities surrounding the death penalty, shedding light on issues of forgiveness, justice, and the inherent dignity of every human being. you never done this before? No. That have been this close to a murderer before?
1: Not that I know of. What
0: is a nun doing in a place like this? I ain't killed nobody, I swear to God I
2: didn't. The claims Vatel will kill both of them. <laughs>
0: Both say the other did they're actually killing somebody's lying to somebody.
2: Let's talk about that night.
0: I won't talk about that.
2: As your friend, I want to help you die with dignity, and I don't see how you can do that unless you start to own up to the part you played in Walter and Hope's death.
1: That scum robbed me of my
2: only son. You don't know when you see your child lead through a door that you're never gonna see them alive again. Do you ever think about those kids?
0: I won't take a lie detector test. I want my mama to know I didn't kill any kids. How can you sit by a side? I like being alone with you, Sean Penn. No more bonds for myself. No more, film, no more God,
2: please don't execute this man.
0: Dead man walking. Yeah, so I saw this movie um, uh, in the early days uh, when, it, when it was out in the theater. Uh, really enjoyed it. It's, it's a great movie. Um, it's hardly a light comedy. It is a um, challenging movie to watch. And it challenges you, which I really liked about it. What I loved about this movie is that it did not offer simple answers, right? It was all about moral ambiguity and the complexity of life and the complexity of having to deal with tricky situations.
2: So really, really great stuff. TJ and Gracio what was two-ish about this movie for you? Okay, so a couple of scenes really jumped out. So after matthew's uh, commutation hearing where he's going before the board they're trying to get his sentence knocked down from death to life in prison and um, after that meeting actually i guess it's during the meeting she has a confrontation with one of the victim's parents so matthew and his accomplice they uh came upon this couple making out in a car in the woods and they it's a double murder they raped the girl And so his accomplice has gotten life in prison. Matthew's getting the death penalty. And so the film explores sort of Sister Helen's relationship as she begins not only to get to know Matthew, but then also the parents of both of the victims. And after this meeting, she realizes that she's been connecting with Matthew, but she hasn't reached out to the parents. And so she begins to to meet with them, to get to know them, hear their stories. And when she's meeting with Hope's parents, um, I don't know the actress's name, but she's one of those like, oh, that's that lady who was in all those movies. And, and this this whole movie, Dead Man Walking, it's is just, just like a those. smorgasbord yes. of all these people from like, oh, I remember her from that kid that movie I saw when I was five years old. So that was fun to you know pick yeah. out all these characters. And of course, the father played by the singular Arlie Ermy. You know, he's <laughs> <laughs> he's one of a kind for sure. Yeah. Uh, so she's talking to Hope's parents. And at one point, Hope's mother says asks her, uh, what made you change your mind and come around to our side?" And she's sort of perplexed by this and she says, well I'm you know Matthew asked me to be his spiritual advisor and I'm going to do that and I'm just trying to do what Jesus did and not treat him you know the, the worst thing about him, make that all about him and and they're just horrified by this and basically they throw her out of the house. You've brought evil into our home. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and the father says, you can't have it both ways. You can't befriend that murderer and expect to be our friend too. And she's just devastated by this. And it's sort of this recurring thing that happens throughout the film where she's just genuinely trying to connect and, and be loving and show compassion to Matthew and everybody around her. And she just, it doesn't compute why, oh, I'm just trying to love him and love you at the same time. Why is that? Why can't I do that? And she runs into this over and over and over again, and there's a—it's um, almost like in a uh, what's what's the right word? Uh, there's a naivete, but it's very endearing. It's like she doesn't know any better, but that fact—it's because she's so healthy. She, right. There's such a purity there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so it's just such a such a healthy portrayal, and very uh, just very moving to see her yeah, operating in these relationships. Yeah great. And then later in the film towards the end, she's spending time with Matthew on the day of his execution and the the love that she has for him. You know, I was thinking if you watch the film with the sound off, you would think that this is a woman who's madly in love with this, you know, she's got her she's talking to him and she's crying and she's got her face pressed into the bars of his cell and you know, he the last thing he says before they start the injection he says i love you to her through the glass and she mouths back to him i love you and she reaches out to him but it's it's not sexual or romantic in the slightest it's this it's like a transcendent spiritual you know in the christian vernacular be in agape love it's like this love that goes beyond these other things and um it just was such a beautiful portrayal of of the highest this is like the ultimate of what a two is striving for it's this love and this connection that transcends what you're going to get out of it or what how you're viewed it's just love for the sake of love and nothing else and it just was really beautiful to watch
0: for for me i love you man represented what was irritating about the two um uh, energy when it's not a particularly healthy to I mean he, he wasn't unhealthy but it just wasn't a mature to a sort of quality whereas this movie was all about the very highest of this right point two on the Enneagram of just this compassion this purity this self-sacrifice but healthy self-sacrifice right it wasn't a oh I do so much for you there was no martyrdom uh, in uh, Helen Prejean that we saw. It was just pure love and giving and just all the best of this. So uh, I would agree with that. Uh, T.J. Dahl, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, and just to add to that, no secret expectation of getting anything back. Just love for its own sake. And it is pretty rare to see a character of any type at the healthiest levels in a movie because generally that, that doesn't provide much conflict for a movie. Whereas in this movie, we do see that in the scenario is so beautifully put together that that provides all the conflict we need. You know, There's no need to make her an unhealthy two so that we have some conflict. Uh, One of the things that seemed too-ish about her, because as I was watching this, I hadn't seen it in a lot of years. I saw it when it was new, like several times. And then there was a big gap that's now like more than 25 years before watching it for this podcast. So as I was watching it thinking like, could this character be a nine? There was some podcast I can't remember that I listened to recently that talked about Karl Popper's thing about you know trying to falsify your own theories. So I was thinking that of like, is there any possibility she's not a two? The only candidate that came to mind was a nine. How different would this character be if she were written and directed to be a nine? And in some ways, not different. Like I can see a nine doing a lot of things, you know, having – equal love and regard for Matthew as well as for the parents of the victim, of you know, wanting to check in with everybody, being friendly and helpful, working in the projects in Baton Rouge where she lives, you know, like doing acts of service, things like that. One of the ways I ended up seeing her as a very healthy two and not a nine is how healthily she's integrated the energies of type eight. So there's a number of scenes where someone challenges her and she pushes back, but in a loving way firm and strong. So there's more than one person who cites the Old Testament and the kind of the punitive passages from the Old Testament and she hits them right back with the New Testament. Or just with the hypocrisy of cherry picking just one phrase from the Old Testament and being guided by that without realizing that there's, you know, death is recommended for things like adultery or breaking the Sabbath or disobeying one's parents. Like she's, She seems very much evolved in that way. Also, The thrust of her relationship with Matthew is not simply being there for him and with them, but challenging him because for the first like three quarters of the movie, he insists that he did not pull the trigger, that it was the other guy that was the real bad guy. He was just there. So she realizes, you know, she can't save him from death, but what she can do is get him to acknowledge and take responsibility for what he did and she doesn't stop on that. She keeps pushing, but lovingly. She never bullies him. When he says, I don't want to talk about that, she listens, and she waits, and the time passes, but she stays on it and breaks through, and that's what creates the love, TJ, that you were talking about before, that is the final moments of this film, where it's just, here's me seeing this real person. Here's this real person seeing me. Here's us acknowledging how flawed a person can be and loving them through that.
0: Yeah. Um, All excellent points. And a piece I would add as to why a two rather than a nine is her affect, uh, her body posture was pure too. She was leaning in all the time, right? She almost never blinked. Yeah, there's something I've seen in twos, this thing for eye contact, right? Which is, you know, just this, I can't, if I blink, I'm going to lose you, right? And so all through this movie, everybody she's talking to, she is leaning into and she's maintaining eye contact and it's big eye contact. And so, you know, yeah, it's um, again, and, and you know, this is one of the things we, we see when people are healthy. We can see more of other types in them, right? It's not, they're not the stereotype of the type because they've integrated in a lot of ways. So, but I, I, I do think, you know, I, I think you ended up in the same place that it is very much a Jewish character. And I would say that this whole movie is about connection. This whole movie is about intimacy in the face of barriers. I mean, very literal barriers, right? I mean, because for most of this movie, they're talking, you know, through uh, through bars, through screens, through plexiglass, through bars. And there is this way, it, it was fascinating to me, I noticed the second time watching it this time, in the beginning when she first meets with him, they're talking through a mesh um, screen. Okay, so and and there is sun reflecting on it. So it seems like more of a barrier, right? You can see that there's this separation between them. The 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 barrier is highlighted. And then a little bit later, there's this side shot where you can't even see the barrier between them. You know, it's there right? But it's like they're just two people sitting close, having a conversation. And then there's another change where there's the plexiglass between them, right? And that was because the relationship had become strained in some way and, you know, some things have happened. And then they had to kind of lean down and talk through the little holes in order to hear each other, right? And then ultimately, of course, he asks, can she touch me? Okay. so he finally gets to and when he's meeting with the family right there's the whole thing about they can't get the family can't get close to him can't touch him so i, I was really you know as i thought about this idea of connection i was um, amazed at how much of this movie was about intimacy in the face of barriers and connection
2: in difficult circumstances yeah they literally talk about it i think he's ta- he's talking about miss one of the things he m- misses most is women and he asked her you know don't you want to get married and have a family and have sex and and she says something about well you can have intimacy without sex and he yes. says to her well we have an intimacy together yes now. yes yes yeah and uh, you're you're
0: absolutely right so it was something very explicit and And it was spread throughout uh, as well, right? In, I think, subtle and nuanced ways that uh, were really quite impressive. There was even that scene where she's talking to the father of the murdered um, boy. And that guy, I don't know if you guys have seen Justified, the the, uh, series on, uh, I think it's on Hulu now with uh, about, it's based on the Elmore Leonard character, Raylan Givens, and stars... uh, Timothy Oliphant. Um, Thank you, Timothy Oliphant, right? Really, really good. Really, really well done. Well, that guy plays Timothy Oliphant's father in Justified, a very, very different character. He's a very dark guy in in that series. But there's that scene where they're talking in his home and the camera slowly pulls away from the two of them sitting next to each other. And what was really interesting to me is that the further the camera got away, even going into the other room and you can see the arch uh, separating the rooms, the more intimate it felt, right? So it was just this amazing uh, way of creating intimacy. Um, uh, uh, Tim Robbins did an amazing job directing this movie. I was really, really impressed.
2: He was nominated for the Oscar. Yes,
0: yes. And uh, I saw those two on the street around the time making this movie in New York on Broadway at about uh, over near the Strand Bookstore. So I guess it's about 12th. He's super tall and she's petite, right? Uh, it was really interesting to see them uh, t- together in uh, uh, in person. But anyway, um, so uh, what else about this movie did you guys want to mention?
1: Um, subtypes. Or even before we get to that, Sean Penn's type.
0: Yeah, um, you know, Sean Penn's an interesting actor that way, because I think he plays a lot of eights, but not all of his characters are eights. I think there's sometimes when there's a bit of six going on there, right? Uh, so with this character, I'm not quite sure if he was a transmitting six or an eight. saw so a lot of eight stuff. So, uh, because of the extremeness of the situation, right, I mean he is facing death, so you know um, you're going to see some complexity and some behavior that we might not associate with eights necessarily, but are normal under the circumstances so i don't know I, I could kind of go either way on that one i don't know what, what what thoughts do you guys have
1: I think he's an eight in real life, so I it's too. very easy for him to bring eightness to a role, although yeah. as you said like in a movie like Milk or Carlito's yes. Way or Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he's not an eight in the slightest right. Right. does that very effectively. Whereas in Colors or in um, Mystic River, very much an eight. Uh, my guess for this was actually three. Oh, uh, interesting. Navigating three. Six, I can see an argument for six as well. Um, the possibility of eightness struck me as clashing with, among other things, his hair. He's got this elaborate do on death row. Yeah, It's like, how much time is he spending grooming himself in his cell? Would an eight do that? No, but a three would. (laughs) And I can picture a three growing up in the circumstances he has. He's poor white trash, basically, to use an unkind term, and absorbing the precept that the best thing that I can be is a tough guy and aspiring to that. So adopting a lot of eightness in his persona, although it's not natural to him. Another thing that I have a harder time imagining eight doing is blaming somebody else for his misfortune of saying, it wasn't my fault, I didn't do it, especially when it comes out later that he did. So he was engaged in a fair bit of self-deception, which again, reads more three to me than eight.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd have to think that through. I I, I think a lot of those things um, can be explained with transmitting six as well as three. Um, So for for me, it just wasn't as clearly cut as her character was for sure. So uh, I, I just, yeah, tricky one.
1: How about the subtype for Sister Helen?
0: So I went back and forth. I would I would lean toward navigating for that, right? It was this... Um, so for Sister Helen, you know, to kind of back up the story there, there is this, you know, kind of going into... Uh, what do you call it? The nunhood or the... the I mean, what is convent. the... Uh, the convent, yeah. So, um, and becoming a nun. And there was this... You know, what happens with the navigating too is that, again, I my identity is through those whom I am connected to. And, you know, in the immortal words of um, Owen Wilson, who better to model yourself after than JC, right? Well, you know, (laughs) well, what better identification to have than, you know, with God, okay? Now, I just... uh, (laughs)
2: I I just We think, all know that the, the nuns are the power behind the throne, you know, the priests are the face but the nuns have that, the real that, power.
0: That's absolutely right. And you know, and it was just this I want to be of service to the world right and that really is just what it was all about i want to be of service to others i want to help people navigate through life you know i mean she was working with the poor people to help them educate themselves right so they could be equipped in life and then she was helping this guy you know navigate his way to death and to to redeem himself you know uh, at least redeem himself spiritually to the extent possible yeah so that, that's where i would have ended up
1: she also does a lot of listening. In fact, yes. it, this is somebody else's comment and I don't know what the percentage comes down to, but I think the majority of her performance, more than 50% of an Oscar winning performance is her listening to other people talk and listening like attentively, wholeheartedly, not listening so that I can jump in and say a nice thing, but like really being the ground that somebody can unload on. And as you said, she's active and she's connected in the community where she lives and works. She also wants to know what the procedures are to be an inmate's spiritual advisor. She wants to play a hymn for Matthew at one point, and the chaplain tells her she can't, and she goes over his head to the, to the warden, like she's aware of what the structures are and how to work it or how to navigate her way within it.
0: Yeah, which also brought to mind another, um, another cameo, Robert Prosky which, you know, is always great to see. And I really liked the scene when they're driving to the prison together and they see the sign, Have Many Rabbit. (laughs) 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 And they just have this moment of joking about that sign. And for me, that was just such a real moment where we're you know we're in this life and death situation literally a life and death situation where we are trying to save somebody's life we're right we're we're driving into the most notorious prison in the country but we still find this moment to have a human experience and a human connection which i thought was wonderful
2: yeah there's another scene with with her and the other nun in the car where they're talking about uh what he's going to wear you know, what they're <laughs> right. after he's dead, what they're, they're going to put in. She's talking about buying a suit and they're laughing, you know, a nun buying a man's suit. And so there were these little moments sprinkled throughout where, uh, just, yeah, finding, finding the joy in life yes, in the midst yes. of difficult circumstances. Yeah.
1: Which I think is very, too, as well, very, un, very, pardon me, very healthy, too, of like finding the joy, finding the brightness, joking around. Yes. Joking with people is a great way to create and firm up bonds. It's a way to connect with people. And she does that, as you said, even in very difficult circumstances, there's still room for that.
0: Yes. And, and when he's meeting with the family for the last time too, and they're teasing the youngest son about whether he went in from his camping, from his tent in the backyard inside because he was afraid or not. And she's kind of laughing along with them and uh, that sort of thing. So it was, it was a, a very sweet and tender and human moment. Um, And that, too, was the thing that I ultimately liked most about this movie, is that it was not simplistic. It was not preaching something, right? Clearly, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon were both, and Sean Penn for that matter, both very, or all very politically um, vocal. And I can't imagine that any of them are anything other than very aggressively anti-death penalty but they didn't sugarcoat it, right? They didn't make it seem, it was, it was a real moral dilemma. And I think especially towards the end of the movie, as you got to realize what a horrific crime this was, to, I found myself conflicted, right? Because I am, uh, I have, you know, since a teenager, been against the death penalty for a number of reasons but sometimes you don't feel that the world is a worse place with some people being taken off the planet, right? I mean, you know, to be quite uh, blunt, right? I mean, there's sometimes when you think, well, I'm against this, but if anybody deserves it, you know, uh, some of those crimes might do it. So I ended up feeling like, yeah, this is really, really sad and things aren't that simple. How would I feel if they were my children? Right, that sort of thing. So I, I I just love the moral complexity of this movie. Okay, so uh, for me, big big thumbs up on uh, Dead Man Walking. Yeah, um, I Love You Man was all right. So uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> all right, guys. Final thoughts. Anything, TJ? Uh, what do you want to add about twos and movies?
1: Other twos. So yeah, we mentioned this before, but. Twos are not as easy to find in the movies, certainly in lead roles as other types. You will find a lot of supporting characters who are twos, namely girlfriends, wives, mothers, grandmothers, and fairy godmothers, and best friends. You'll see assistants who are twos, and two great examples of this on TV that I am familiar with, Gary on Veep, and Lloyd on Entourage, all powerful assistant twos who like being the assistant and yet know a lot and are active and aware. as we mentioned, female villains in thrillers. So, fatal attraction, misery, the hand that rocks the cradle, some very unflattering portrayals of twos and those. And in general, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, even though a lot of people would take it as this, chick flicks have a lot of two-ish elements in it, whether the characters are male or female. So chick flicks are often about relationships between friends, relationships between lovers or friends who become lovers, relationships between a parent and a child. So they're relationship-focused stories. They're stories of love and of bonding ultimately. And twos in general like stories where people get together. Uh, You see this a lot in family sitcoms or group of friends sitcoms. You know, It's about a group of people who love each other and need each other and are there for each other in spite of their differences and their disagreements. Uh, Relationship-focused reality shows. So shows like The Bachelor are kind of the equivalent of professional wrestling for twos in terms of the <laughs> falsity that pretends to be real and that is about you know good people versus bad people and all the manipulations and alliances that happen about that. Children's entertainment. You will find a lot of twos involved in creating children's music or children's programming. I think Sesame Street has a lot of twoishness in it. And a few specific movies, Nine to Five, I think Dolly Parton, who's a two in real life, plays a wonderful two in that. Encanto, the lead character in that, I think is a Navigating 2. The Eyes of Tammy Faye Baker. Jessica Chastain plays the famous televangelist. Uh, Fargo, I think Francis McDormand's character in that is very much a 2. And Life is Beautiful. Roberto Benigni, possibly a 2 in real life. Okay,
0: guys. Well, thank you both. Um, Again, this wraps up season four of the enneagram in a movie podcast uh we've got some exciting things coming next season we've been kicking around ideas and uh dear listener we think you're going to be really excited about what we have in the pipeline so stay tuned and we'll see you next time thanks for listening to the enneagram in a movie podcast be sure to join us for the next exciting episode in the meantime Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and join us on social media.